From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Dr. Shadi Hamid joins me to discuss President Donald Trump's Mideast policy in lieu of the disappearance of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. Intentionally or not, President Trump foreshadowed how Saudi Arabia reportedly plans on explaining the apparent death of Jamal Khashoggi. It sounded to me like maybe these could have been rogue killers. Who knows? According to American media outlets, the Saudis will admit Khashoggi was killed, but will say he died in an interrogation gone wrong, and that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman ordered his questioning, but not his killing, a murder likely to be blamed on an intelligence officer going against official orders. President Trump may have heard the same narrative from King Salman during a phone call this morning. I can only tell you that his denial to me is just one very, you know, relatively fast phone call probably lasted 20 minutes. His denial to me could not have been stronger, that he had no knowledge. But still no explanation for why that team of Saudi officials arrived, reportedly carrying a bone saw, one of many reasons others are more skeptical. Let's remember, this is the same King Salman who told me right after 9-11 that the 9-11 attacks were an Israeli plot, and he said that firmly. Uh, did I believe that? Of course not. President Trump is doing a delicate dance. Though he previously threatened tough action, he's also eager not to undermine the Saudi relationship and arms deals worth billions. Asked whether he canceled them in the wake of Khashoggi's disappearance, the president was noncommittal. So would you cut that off? Do I? Well, I tell you what I don't want to do. Boeing, Lockheed, Raytheon, all these I don't want to hurt jobs. Meanwhile, Turkish and Saudi investigators went inside the consulate today, a seemingly futile effort nearly two weeks after Khashoggi disappeared, especially since a cleaning crew was seen going in a few hours earlier. Ellen Morrow, CBC News, Washington. That report, provided by the Canadian Broadcasting Network, offers a distillation to the mystery involving dissident Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, President Trump's foreign policy concerns, and America's complicated relationship with its ally, Saudi Arabia. On October 2nd of this year, Khashoggi disappeared after entering the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. There were unconfirmed reports that Khashoggi had been brutally murdered. And there are also evolving stories. Saudi government initially claimed no knowledge of Khashoggi's disappearance. Then, according to President Donald Trump, they claimed it might be the work of rogue killers not affiliated with the Saudi government. At the time of this broadcast, it had been reported that the Saudi officials were mulling over how much to admit about Khashoggi's death. Somewhere in this macabre maze, truth is found. But it will require more than the current narrative. And then what? Will the Trump administration take punitive measures? How might the Saudis respond? And what does this say about the president's Mideast policy? Joining me to answer these questions is Dr. Shadi Hamid. 
Dr. Hamid is a senior fellow in the Project on U.S. Relations with the Islamic World in the Center for Mideast Policy at the Brookings Institute. And he is also the author of Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World. Dr. Shadi Hamid, welcome to The Public Morality. Hi, thanks for having me. Hmm. Uh, I want to begin with your piece that, that posted on the Brookings website the other day and uh, is also in the Atlantic Magazine. You, you open your piece uh, discussing that... Uh, President Donald Trump's Mideast policy is many things, but it's not incoherent. How are you defining that policy, and in what ways does it depart from uh, maybe some of his recent predecessors? Yeah, sure. So I think we talk about America first, and we kind of make fun of it or laugh, but I think there is something there. It doesn't mean we have to like it. I personally think that it's a rather flawed approach to, to foreign policy, but I think as Trump sees it, um, there, there is this focus on relying on dictators or authoritarian regimes to just get business done and then turn a blind eye to questions of human rights and democracy. And also this transactional focus that you get what you can get out of your allies. And then it's all about, it's, it's all about <laughs> in a very narrow sense, America first. Um, so put your values aside and just focus on how it might help the domestic economy. Can it help you get some jobs back into the U.S.? So I think that now this is not to say that this is a fundamental departure, because I think that there has always been a soft spot for authoritarians. And even Barack Obama is someone who I would argue really failed to do the right thing during the Arab Spring when there was this really once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to stand up for our values and ideals as Americans, but instead we fell, ba fell back on what we know best, which is, um, hey, here's, a, here's a, strong, a strong man or an autocrat, and you know, let's, not, let's not shake things up too much. Let's not have too much instability. Let's go with what we know. And, but Trump takes, takes it several steps further, and he doesn't even offer the pretense of caring about human rights. He can't even be bothered to pay the lip service, and I think that's what makes it so jarring. Uh, I would say, well, I guess you could make the counter-argument, not, not that I would say, but the, the counter-argument could be made. Uh, in fairness to the president, you sort of alluded to this already. He's not the only one who's sort of gone down this path. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about uh, last year, I believe, uh, about a year ago, uh, Tom Friedman uh, wrote a piece uh, praising the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, known now informally as MBS. Uh, yeah. and, and, and Mr. Friedman writes, quote, I never thought I'd live long enough to write this sentence. The most significant reform process underway anywhere in the Middle East today is in Saudi Arabia, unquote. I mean, it was a piece in which, you know, Mr. Friedman was rather effusive in, in his praise. And so I, I guess part of uh, my question to you, sir, is, is some of this just not the, the downside, if you will, of realpolitik and, and that America has a long history of having some rather unsavory allies at times? Yeah, it's part of a longer story. And, I, and I, I'm always worried when we think that Trump is something fundamentally new and we act as if we had never dealt with dictators before. I mean, that's silly, and I think it's quite partisan to see it in that light. 
Again, though, I mean, there are differences about Trump, and you have to ask yourself, well, how much does the rhetoric matter? I think rhetoric matters from U.S. presidents, so even if we don't live up to our own ideals, we say that we care about them, because that sets a tone for the rest of the country. It gives, us a, it gives others a benchmark by which to judge us, and Trump, Trump just dispenses with all of that. And you can actually say that there's something clarifying about that, that He's not pretending, and now we can, we, can, we can talk straight up about what the U.S. does abroad. So perhaps that's one, one possible argument. Now, but, but you know, about when it comes to the Middle East more specifically, I think that the other part of Trump's America First approach is he doesn't want to deal with the Middle East too much. He doesn't want to get involved in the internal politics of different countries. He wants to find allies that he can outsource American policy, too. And that's where I think our reliance on the crown prince, MBS, in Saudi Arabia becomes important, is that Trump saw him as a kind of kindred spirit, and certainly his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, developed a close relationship with the crown prince, and they said, hey, we'll let you guys do what you want. You, you run things in the Middle East the way you like. You can have a pretty destructive war in Yemen. You can have an ongoing crackdown on dissidents. You can uh, launch a, a counterproductive blockade against Qatar. You can basically kidnap the Lebanese prime minister and try to force him to resign, as, as the Saudis did last year, and we're not going to say anything. So I think that's, there is a bigger theme here of the U.S. is really taking a step back, and we're going to kind of let people run amok as long as they're our friends. And, you know, there was some aspect of this to Obama's policy of, Let's not get too involved in the Middle East. But again, I think Trump is doubling down on this. Now, when it comes to what um, Tom Friedman said, and I think that Friedman has been pilloried quite a bit in, in recent days, and the quote that you mentioned is obviously a, a problematic one in light of recent events. That said, I, I do think that, you know, it's interesting that I think Friedman was maybe partly right, that... MBS is a kind of revolutionary figure, someone who was really trying to transform his country. I don't necessarily see that as a good thing, though. So when Friedman says, here's a big reform process and this is a transformational moment for Saudi Arabia, he's partly right, but I think that's what makes MBS such a, such a dangerous figure, is that he sees himself in historical terms, that he wants to have this legacy of changing his country. And any time you have um, a very strong-willed leader who's trying to get things done very quickly, you're going to have a lot of repression. You're going to have less room for dissent, because the way that MBS sees it, if he's transforming his country, no one should stand in his way, because that's going to block or hinder the transformation. So, I mean, my bigger lesson is be careful what you wish for. We want these, these young, modernizing um, figures in the Middle East who will change things and, you know, knock heads together. And quite literally, they do knock heads together. So I actually see that, I see this as two sides of the same coin, that MBS has a dark side, but that dark side is intertwined with the idea of him being this once-in-a-lifetime reformer for Saudi Arabia. And I don't want to make too much of, of, of make this too much about Thomas Friedman, but 
even that piece is part of a larger narrative because he's been searching uh, for a number of years for the Middle East to have its version of Nelson Mandela. So I, mean, I think that's 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 been part of his narrative. Uh, yeah, and I and I think all. I, but you know, it's not just it's not just Tom Friedman. I think that we in the West, more generally, we love to find ourselves a good narrative, especially when it comes to the backward Arabs, and we want to find the good Arab <laughs> get get people's act together and push them into the modern age. A lot of these, I think, you know, stereotypes and and uh, and cliches, if you will, and about about these expectations, and we're projecting some of our own our own selves onto the Middle East. And we have to be very careful about that. And there have been other times where there have been young modernizers and so-called reformers, Gamal Mubarak, the son of the former uh, Egyptian dictator Hosni Mubarak. Mm -hmm. If you might recall that in the early 2000s, you know, as as hard as it is to believe now, people were calling, uh, some prominent politicians in the West were calling Bashar al-Assad a reformer because he was young, he was British educated, he seemed nicer than his father, and he spoke English, and he had a beautiful wife, and we got to be very careful about this kind of about the surface, and we got to look deeper at what these people really represent. Well, no offense, but being being nicer than his father is not exactly a very high bar to it. To <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. But he's actually turned out to be less. I mean, more yes. brutal than yes. his father, and that's what we found out. Yeah. Um, b- beyond the descriptions. Of, of Washington Post as uh, of, of um, missing journalist um, Jamal Khashoggi, um, he's been described as a Washington Post columnist or a Saudi dissident journalist. Why has this story, in your opinion, um, resonated globally? Well, so I think part of it is that there, there, there's a real human connection in this story because, you know, he's someone that. A lot of people, maybe if they didn't even realize it, might have read in passing in the Washington Post. They might have seen one of his articles. He was someone who was living in Washington. Um, and I think for some people in D.C., they knew him quite well. I didn't know him that well, but I did. I, I had met him a few times. And actually, as odd as it is to say right now, I mean, the last time I saw him, which I think was in April, we even talked about getting coffee, and I and I regret now, and I feel weird that you know, we didn't have that coffee, and now I'll never be able to talk to him again. So there's, there is this, um, it, 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 it feels personal, and this is a man. This is a man who died, and we can't lose sight of that, of that fundamental tragedy. I think also, though, that there's something so brazen and reckless about what the Saudis did. It sounds like something out of a movie or a spy thriller. I mean, they're luring someone into their consulate in a foreign country, under false pretenses, and then they apparently, you know, uh, tortured him, and then they dismembered him, and it just seems like, what were they thinking? And that's what a lot of us are trying to come to terms with. Were the Saudis that um, that uh, misguided, or uh, to put it, put it nicely, or quite frankly, dumb, to think that they could get away with quite literally murder of, you know, it just... So I think that's why people are amazed by this story is, wait, they really thought they could do this? It's nuts. Hmm. You know, now, and, and furthering that, Mr. Khashoggi, as I understand, was not part of any Saudi opposition. You know, he, he, I don't recall that he was asking for free and fair elections, but he objected to being, you know, censored for writing certain things about Saudi politics or 
or talked about the Saudi economy or the, or the Saudi future. And if that's correct, again, I, I talked about the low bar, but isn't this a, a really a low bar of, of dissent? And what does it say if this is someone whose life was in danger? So this is a really good point. I mean, uh, Khashoggi himself never, never saw himself as being an opponent of the regime. He thought of himself as a loyal opposition, that he wanted to help MBS um, you know, reform the country in a better way that wasn't as repressive. And he started off with you know, more milder criticisms, and he became more critical over time as he saw what MBS was doing. But in the end, he never called for, you know, regime change or getting rid of MBS. So it, the message here is, is a striking one that even fairly, fairly reasonable criticisms, there was no room for that in the new Saudi Arabia under this young crown prince. And, um, and that's a real shift because some people might say, well, oh, well, Saudi Arabia was always autocratic. What's so big of a deal that they're still autocratic? Well, actually, yes. Saudi Arabia has always been authoritarian, but at least before there were pockets of dissent that were allowed. You could say things here and there. You had to be careful, but you didn't have to fear for your life. You didn't have to worry about what you would say to dinner party, but now you have to be careful. You have to watch your back, watch, look over your shoulder. And there's a real climate of fear that even if you say something in the privacy of your own home, let's say if you're having some guests over for dinner, you're, you have to wonder, well, if you say something critical of MBS, is someone going to spread the word or word will get around? And in elite circles in Saudi Arabia, a lot of people know each other, at least to some extent. So there's a different level of repression. And that's what changed. And that's what I think was so was so um, worrisome to Jamal, Jamal Khashoggi is that he felt that something was changing. Also, it's worth noting, he was, he was for a time a media advisor in the government to the former uh, Saudi ambassador to the U.S. He's someone who was seen as a consummate insider, someone who was even, um, uh, you know, there was one article I saw which described him as, as being seen as an unofficial uh, spokesman for members of the royal family. So he's someone who had very close ties to various people in the Saudi elite. And that also makes the story a little bit more... Um, more again, like something out of a movie. This is not someone who's who wanted to be a human rights uh, a human rights activist. He's someone who saw himself as a patriot, and he felt that he could no longer live in Saudi Arabia, and that's why he had to, you know, live in exile. And he he moved to the U.S. in June t- 2017 because he thought that lines were being crossed that he never thought would be crossed. Yeah, this uh, goes back to one of your previous answers, sir, but. How might the United States' current relationship, and this goes to some of the rhetoric with Saudi Arabia under President Trump, could it have, in your view, impacted the fate of Mr. Khashoggi? Well, I think one thing we've seen since Trump has been in office is an empowering and emboldening of autocrats, as we've touched on. And I think that makes some autocrats feel like they can get away with anything. And they start to lose sight of what the limits are. They become so in love with their with their power and of doing whatever they want really. And I wonder, I do wonder, you know, you know, we can we can speculate about counterfactuals, but I wonder if MBS would have been as brazen as this. And not just when it comes to the the targeting of a, of a journalist, or, but also more generally when it comes to 
the overall crackdown on dissent that we've seen in Saudi Arabia more generally, would he go as far as he's gone if the international environment was a little bit different? And let's say you had a different U.S. president who put more of a priority on human rights and was actually willing to say something to MBS in the lead-up to this? I, I, you know, who knows? But I do think that the bro- that broader context is important, that autocrats feel they can get away with pretty much anything, and it's not just in Saudi Arabia. We can talk about you know, Egypt, the Assad regime, North Korea. I mean, you name it, the U.S. doesn't seem like it's there. We're absent. And that matters, and people start to get the message. Uh, now, you wrote uh, in your piece uh, on the Brookings site, uh, quote, in Trump's world, friends, particularly friends that are both Arab and authoritarian, are to be criticized as little as possible, especially on low priorities on the, on, for the administration like human rights. That, to me, uh, sounds at best like a laissez-faire approach to human rights uh, by perceived allies and worst. So we just sort of touched on earlier, um, at least tacit approval uh, for their affairs. And I, and I wondered how, how you saw that. I mean, not to use the cliche, but perhaps it's relevant here, but silence is complicity. I mean, if you're not saying anything in response to, you know, brutal crackdowns on opposition or, or whatever it might be, then people, you know, people take that as a sign that the U.S. doesn't care and the U.S. isn't going to say anything, the U.S. isn't going to take issue. So, you know, I, I do think that when we, when we as Americans take a step back we might think that it's neutral because we're not saying anything, so it's not positive or negative. But the rest of the world takes it as sending a message. So in that sense, is the U.S. ever neutral? Because even when we don't do something, in a way, it's doing something. And that's perhaps the, the, um, the burden, let's say, of, of U.S. power, is that everything is interpreted by the rest of the world for good or bad. And we can't pretend that we're innocent bystanders. Well, well, staying with that, um, how then might it impact when foreign leaders, I'm not specific to Saudi, but just in general, foreign leaders hear this president tout uh, members of the press as uh, enemy of, of the people? Does that, does that sort of embolden them as well? You know, I've been wondering about that, and, you know, I, I wouldn't want to make too much of that because— I don't, I, first of all, I don't know how closely um, various Arab leaders follow the ins and outs. They know that Trump, they do know that Trump has a kind of authoritarian sensibility, and I think that's the more important takeaway for them rather than specific comments. Because let's also be fair, you know, Trump can talk a big game about journalists being bad and CNN being the worst thing ever, but Trump doesn't kill journalists. Um, and, and Trump isn't trying to arrest journalists. And even if he did try, I don't think he'd be able to because our system is fundamentally different. So, um, so I wouldn't want to put Trump on the same level here because um, I think for Trump, a lot of it is bluster and a lot of it is rhetoric. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, does he really want to, you know, what does he actually, you know, we can hypothesize if he was a dictator what he would actually do, but that's not the world that we live in. But I do think that there is a sense that Trump is of like mind, that he does get the authoritarian personality. He does have a kind of authoritarian mindset that he doesn't like. He doesn't like criticism, and he gets very worked up over criticism, and he wants to just do things his way, his way or the highway. And I think that people, 
various leaders abroad, they see Trump as a kindred spirit in that way, that he gets them in a way that maybe Obama didn't, because Obama wasn't really like that. Obama was, you know, uh, a bit more cerebral, if we can use that word, and, you know, um, circumspect about having very, very one-sided opinions. He was always looking for, you know, oh, on one hand, on the other hand, that sort of thing. You know, Trump doesn't do that. So I think that that's why Trump gets along with some of these uh, repressive leaders on in one-on-one meetings, because he can speak their language, and they think that he can speak their language. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Shadi Hamid, Senior Fellow in the Project on U.S. Relations with Islamic World in the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C. Dr. Hamid, uh, what do you make of reports uh, that the Saudi ambassador told the chair, I can barely say this without, and keep a straight face, he actually told the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Bob Corker, uh, that their consulate surveillance video only li- did live stream. Oh, yeah, that was that was rather laughable. And I, even Senator Corker himself was like, hey, I'm not taking this. Come on, seriously, guys? So there is a kind of disrespect if you have like a, if you have a Saudi official who's playing you, and you're and you're a prominent U.S. senator. You got to be a little bit offended. I mean, there, you know, we can, you know, um, we as Americans, we sometimes look the other way, but we we sometimes take issue if we're lied to in our face. Um, so I think that's maybe one way of looking at Corker's response. Like really, um, and other things that are quite other other um, things that Saudi officials have said over the past two weeks. Oh. Um, Khashoggi left by the back entrance, and we don't know where he went, and we're looking for him, and we want to, you know, oh, I mean, it's so, it, it beggars belief. And that's why I think the a lot of us, and I think most of the world, saw what the Saudis were saying, and they were offended by it because they're taking us as fools. And no one wants to be taken as a fool. Well, well, the latest, because we haven't had a confirmation from, from the Saudi government to change the narrative, but the latest story, wasn't it that um, there were rogue killers inside the consulate? Is that, was that the latest story coming from? Yeah, so when I heard that, I, I literally laughed out loud. Because, again, like, what what is this? This is not serious. I mean, so, first of all, how this is a Saudi consulate. That's This is where the... This is where the murder would have happened in their in their consulate, part of the Saudi government. How are rogue killers hanging out in the Saudi consulate in such a in in, in such a prom, in such a prominent country as Turkey? I mean, it's come on, really. So I I think that when a lot of people heard that, they rightfully said this is ridiculous. Um, you know, other other theories that have been bandied about that the Saudis seem to be playing around with is oh, you know, we just wanted to kidnap him and abduct him and take him back to Saudi Arabia and imprison him for, like, you know, who knows how long. You know, first of all, that's a funny argument to make because, uh, not, well, funny in a very sad way, because it means basically that that's also really bad. Kidnapping someone on foreign soil is is something that is outrageous. So, So what are the Saudis really trying to say here? We only kidnapped him? And then it just kind of went bad, and um, this is an interrogation gone bad. And then why would they dismember his body? How do you explain that? So um, whatever scenario you want to take, um, rogue killers or the failed abduction theory, um, they're still extremely bad. And there's still something that no, no country that has any claim to even a hint of morality should, should accept. 
I mean, it's it's just anyway, yeah. <laughs> now I want to touch on the uh, president's um, sixty minutes interview um, this past weekend um, when he when he mentioned. A re- I took it as a reluctance to take uh, economic uh, actions against Saudi Arabia because uh, he didn't want to hurt jobs. And he talked about the proposed $110 billion arms deal with Saudi Arabia. What goes through your mind when you hear that? I hear a president who doesn't even pretend to care about the values upon which his country is founded. I mean, it really... We've never had it. This is where it, it really feels different to me. I and mean, we've never had a president who just doesn't seem to care about about I, anything having to do with our ideals. It's not. It's almost as if he's not even aware of this, of this, of this heritage, of this pedigree. Again, I don't want. I don't want to idealize American history. And obviously, I mean, we know, we know that in practice we've done terrible things, whether at home or abroad. But, but this is this is just. Um, Again, the lack of pretense, and, and so. But in this specific comment, though, Trump is also playing, playing a bad negotiator. Like if he, if he claims to be a good negotiator, you don't give up the goose in the very beginning. You don't you don't um, you don't make concessions before you you've even started talking to the Saudis. So he's he's already saying that he has no interest in halting arms deals with the Saudis. And that's our that's our biggest point of leverage with the Saudi regime because their military, their air force would be grounded in short order if we completely halted um, military sales and military support because we do provide um, military to military support on a regular basis and we help with with things like logistical support, refueling when it comes to Saudi Arabia's intervention in Yemen. So they depend on us tremendously, and. If he's not even willing to consider that as a point of leverage, then the Saudis have already won in the negotiation. So, but if you think about it differently, and you say, "Well, hey, I'm looking for I'm looking for the art of the deal," but I'm going to start with a strong with a strong opening position and say, "Hey, this might be on the table." That would be the smarter way to approach it. And I just that's what you really have to wonder about: what is Donald Trump thinking? If the if the U.S. were to take some sort of punitive economic um, action against Saudi Arabia, uh, could they in return uh, respond in return, and, and could that sort of spiral into something else? Yeah, they could. But look, so at the end of the day, in the U.S. Saudi relationship, we are the senior partner, and they are the junior partner. They need us much more than we need them. I mean, not to, I don't want to, you know, I I don't want to use the the kind of like over the top, like American, like, uh, like we're the best kind of rhetoric, but you know, we're America. Let's not pretend that we're just some random country that can be beaten about or, um, or bullied. We're not Mauritania. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's yes. That's one way of putting it. No offense so, to the people of Mauritania when yeah, I said that. Yeah, of course. That. Yeah. I mean, let's have some respect for ourselves. If we're proud of our country and if we think that our country stands for something, and we are the, we are the lone superpower, let's not let's not get in this kind of thing where, oh, we're worried about retaliatory measures from from Saudi Arabia, which is not a world power. It's not one of the world's major economies. 
even when it comes to the one point of influence they used to have more of back in the day when it came to the oil market, we are less dependent on Saudi oil today than we've ever been because of changes in the oil market and our own domestic production of oil. So, um, you know, if the Saudis want to shoot themselves in the foot and damage their own economic standing to hurt others, if they really want to go down that route, you know, hey, really, let's call their bluff because they'd, they'd actually be hurt more by those kinds of aggressive measures. And it would, re- uh, and it would really also show that they are a supposed ally that is, that is more than happy to punish or try to punish, I should say, other countries economically. Um, so I think that um, if that's really the way they want to go, let's call their bluff and see what that actually looks like. In the end of the day, we will, I mean, the U.S. economy is not going to be hurt in any noticeable or significant way by anything the Saudis are able to do. It might affect oil prices for a little while, but again, that doesn't have a huge effect on the U.S. economy anymore, not like it did certainly in the 70s, not even close, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go back to something you said earlier. You talked about being transactional. And, and if one approaches policies exclusively in a transactional manner, could one not make the case that the president, um, this president in particular, doesn't necessarily share sort of those long-held American values, at least not in a conventional manner that we've grown accustomed? Now, I, I realize you've already nuanced that, but I, I wonder, is that the danger when everything is transactional? Well, so let's even admit that the transactional side is important, and let's pretend that we don't have any sense of morality for a moment. Even in that case, I would argue that Trump's approach is counterproductive because he's basically saying to the Saudis that they can get away with anything. If we're thinking about our own national interests, we want to find a way to rein the Saudis in so they don't keep on wreaking havoc in the Middle East. We don't want them to be a destabilizing force in the Middle East. What that requires, though, is clear is clear a relationship where we make clear what our expectations are, and we say, "Hey, this is not productive. This is dangerous. You're you're actually calling into doubt our broader Middle East strategy. We want to rely on you, but you got to make it easy for us. So even if you're looking at it from this transactional standpoint, it's not clear to me how anything the Saudis are doing is helpful in that more narrow conception of what we want from them." And so staying with that, about the, so, so the danger of the transactional peace, can the United States maintain any semblance uh, of moral authority with, 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 within its foreign policy vision if it's transactional in scope? Is it, is it not in, isn't that in and of itself sort of paradoxical? Yes. So I think Trump actually, perhaps unwittingly, is offering a, mas- you know, a master course, if you will, on the dangers of a merely transactional politics. I mean, we're, we're learning a broader lesson, and I think we've seen it also with Obama, because Obama would sometimes fall back on the transactional approach with Arab allies as well. It didn't work then. It definitely is not working now. And we've also seen how reliance on authoritarian regimes, we've been doing that basically since the 1950s in the Middle East. And at some point, you got to ask yourself, does this work? So again, I'm willing to say, even if you don't care about values or ideals, does it work? And we've seen how the Middle East has become a basket case of instability, whether we're looking at the Arab Spring, the fall of the Arab Spring, authoritarian regimes doing very destabilizing things, um, the legacy of 9-11. The list goes on about all the bad things that that have happened in the Middle East that have come from the Middle East 
So we have to rethink in very fundamental terms the way we do business in this region. That would be my argument. I've been making it for a long time. It's hard for U.S. policymakers to get on board with that because they're so used to doing business with the one leader or the one autocrat, and they think that that's – and they might actually admit that it doesn't work in the long run, but they say, hey, we're only in office for a few years. we got to do what's good in the short run. So there is a real trade-off here that we got to become – more aware of. And I think that if we're looking at it more broadly, our interests and our ideals, they're not separate. And I always worry about kind of phrasing it in those terms, interests versus ideals, because we can see how um, they're, they're connected in, in complex ways. That if we don't support um, our ideals, if we don't support human rights or democracy, it comes back to haunt us in ways that affects our national security. Because authoritarian regimes are by definition unstable. Why? Because they don't last forever. They always get a little bit weak or vulnerable, or they get quite weak and vulnerable. And do you really want to put your stock in one leader who might go somewhere, who might, who might either fall from power, or there might be some internal maneuver against him, like we saw with the Arab Spring? Do you want to put your stock in a leader who doesn't have popular buy-in from his own people? And uh, that's a risky proposition, and we're seeing how it's risky with someone like MBS, who just can't be counted on to do the right thing. Just on your, on your last point, so you would have thought we would have learned that lesson in the run-up to the Vietnam conflict. So, I mean... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we don't learn. So yeah. that, there's a real question here. Why don't we learn? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned about um, our ideals and, and our policies, and, and I'm wondering... Uh, have you given any thought to this? How about the president's personal business interests? Are they potentially in conflict with our national interests? I mean, it's been widely documented that the Saudi business has been profitable for the president personally. And the mere fact that it can be raised as a possibility for any U.S. president, for me, is actually concerning. Yeah, I think I think that's that's a legitimate concern to have. I would see it more as maybe you know again this is speculation that, and I don't theoretically uh, Trump and his family might might think about oh what happens uh, once Trump leaves office and they wanna they wanna continue making money and having relation economic relationships in the Middle East that could be a consideration certainly, um, but I wouldn't you know I worry about because there's that's about. Ki- then we have to start getting into connecting the dots, and then it starts to seem a little bit... Um, Conspiracy theory? <laughs> not even that. It just seems like what, there's, a, there's an easier argument to make, and I worry that that argument relies on certain assumptions, and it also assumes that we can get in Trump's head. What is he thinking about what he, what he wants to do after he leaves office? I don't really have a great insight into that, because let's be honest, he's already rich enough, so I wonder, is that really the driving force for him? Because, to be fair, he did used to say pretty bad things about the Saudis in the campaign when it came to their alleged involvement in 9-11. And even just a few weeks ago, this I mentioned this in my piece, it didn't get a lot of attention. At the time, Trump was at a rally where he said that, um, basically, that if, if we stopped our support for the Saudis, they would fall apart in two weeks. At the, so kind of saying like, um, kind of like talking talking smack to them, if you know, if that's one way to put it. So he has used some pretty some pretty tough rhetoric with the Saudis before, and you know why did he do it then? 
when he had business interests during the campaign. So I don't know. I don't know. It is a concern, and people should raise it. And if they can draw a clearer line between um, Trump's business interests and members specifically of the Saudi regime and lay that out for us to see, I'm more than willing to see it. But I think there are stronger arguments, at least at least for now, that we can that we can use. Dr. Shadi Hamid, senior fellow at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C., and author of Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World. Thank you, sir, for joining me today on The Public Morality. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. Welcome back. My closing remarks, unfortunately, must come in the form of an advertisement for my new book, Solitaire, Magda Goebbels and the Banality of Ambition and Evil. It is an historical novella that has received great reviews on Amazon. It is a tale about the last days of the Third Reich in its most visible female face in Magda Goebbels. Though it is a work of fiction, the history, as one reviewer offered, has been well documented. And as another wrote, the life of Magda Goebbels was stranger than fiction. Solitaire is available on Amazon, in paperback, as well as ebook. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B Y R O N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.